If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We've been in the book of 1 Peter now for several weeks, and what we've discovered and what we've learned is that the book of 1 Peter is a manual for aliens and pilgrims. And the reason this is so important is because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you know Christ Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, you are an alien and a pilgrim. This world is not your final resting place. And while we live here, we recognize as aliens and pilgrims that we are not here to primarily get or receive as consumers, but rather as aliens, we're actually here to give. We're actually here to invest the love and the message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And so what part of what Peter's doing in these first couple of chapters is he's been helping us understand that we have a rich inheritance that doesn't come from our bank account in this world. Our inheritance doesn't come from some uh, distant relation who's going to pass down some wealth to us. Actually, The inheritance we've been given is actually being guarded in heaven right now by Jesus Christ. And what Peter's going to do in this passage this morning is he's going to further describe the beauty and the splendor of our inheritance in Christ. And here's how he's going to do that this morning. He's going to use imagery and allusions to the Old Testament to point to realities in our life. So you're going to see several times through this passage this morning how Peter's going to talk about realities from the Old Testament that have a New Testament dimension to them. And what I want you to watch is how our inheritance as an alien is further deepened, further beautified by these Old Testament references that Peter gives us. With all that said, why don't you stand up with me as we honor the reading of God's Word in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Peter 2, 4, we read these words. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, right now we're asking for you to speak to us. God, I confess my inability 
and my weakness as a communicator, as a speaker, to try to change people's hearts. God, only you can do that. And so, Father, we pray that this morning you would take your word, and by your spirit, we pray that you would touch people's hearts. You would open eyes so that we can understand. And, Lord, most of all, we pray that as we hear from you, that we would not just be hearers of your word. Would you help us be doers? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The focus that Peter uses to help us understand the depth of our inheritance is his description of Jesus Christ as a cornerstone. In verse 6, look in your Bibles with me, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter there is quoting directly from the book of Isaiah. He's using an Old Testament reference to make a New Testament point. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that God predicted with Isaiah that there would come a time when a stone of foundation would be laid upon which the work and the glory of God could go out. And what Peter's saying is that Jesus Christ is this predicted foundation. And he uses the idea of uh, and building of a cornerstone to help further this. What is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is that piece of the foundation that goes down first that establishes what the rest of the foundation and thus the building is going to look like. So it's that corner piece around which the entire structure kind of hinges. You can look at what that corner piece does and how it's shaped and how long it is, how big it is, and you can from that pretty much determine what the entire structure is going to be. And so here's what Peter's saying in this passage to you and to me. You and I as aliens are to trust in Christ as our cornerstone. We're to build the structure of our lives totally and completely around this piece of foundation that is Christ. And so if you push that analogy further, what it means is that all the priorities in my life, all the commitments that I have, all that I hold important and dear, if Christ is my cornerstone, that means he determines those things for me. One of the reasons this is so important is because all of us have some cornerstone we're building around. All of us have something that we've put at the corner of our foundation that's setting the structure, the priorities, the commitments of our lives. For some of us, that might be our finances. It might be our job. For some of us, it might be our family and the commitments we have with scheduling with our family. For others of us, it might be some position of power or status that we have in our community. The point is, it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from, every human being is trusting and building around something. And what Peter says here is what you and I, as, <clears throat> as aliens, should be building around is Christ. Now here's a question. Where does Peter get off saying that Jesus and Jesus alone is who we should build around? I mean, what's wrong with your family? What's wrong with your finances? What's wrong with your status and position in society? Why can't you build around those things? Where does Peter get off saying that Christ and Christ alone is who we should build around? Look back at your Bibles. Verse 4, as you come to him, notice this very carefully, a living stone. 
Not a dead stone, a living stone. What is Peter talking about? He's talking about the fact that the stone you and I are building around is the resurrected, victorious Jesus. And because Jesus is resurrected and victorious, he can make a claim to exclusivity. You see, here's the principle Peter's giving us. Exclusivity is validated in victory. The reason Jesus Christ can say that he's the only way to the Father, the reason Jesus Christ can say that unless you trust in him, you cannot be forgiven of your sins, the reason he can say that he's the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6, is because he's victorious. So we understand this in other arenas of life, right? We understand this in athletics. There's going to be a team in college football at the end of this year that will say they are the best team in college football. Probably not going to be Mizzou this year, I'm sorry to say, in case you've been watching the sports world. Probably not going to be them. But part of what's happened in college football is we've gone to this playoff system, right? Sports fans out there, are you with me? Went to the playoff system so that we could say... Of these four teams that have the best record, this one team that wins out is the best team. They get a record to prove it. They get rings to validate their victory and their ability to say, we're the best team, and to make that exclusive claim. Here's what Peter's saying about Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ring that Jesus puts on his finger to say, I am it. I'm the cornerstone. There's no other cornerstone you can build around. There's nothing else you can give your life to to structure your commitments and your priorities and your existence. Jesus and Jesus alone is it. Exclusivity is validated in victory. And what Peter does to help push this idea of cornerstone is he articulates two responses people have to this cornerstone. On the one hand, he's going to talk about people who don't believe reject the cornerstone in favor of some other foundation they're building on. And then he's going to come back and talk about those who believe. Look at the characteristics with me just for a moment of the people who don't believe. Look at verse 7. So the honors for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 8, and a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter says there are two responses, and the first is to reject the cornerstone. There's some Old Testament references here. I just want to spend a moment explaining. In verse 7, he talked about the builders rejecting Jesus. What's he talking about there? What he's specifically referring to is the fact that at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, when he walked this earth and performed miracles, the Jewish leaders, the builders rejected Jesus. In fact, if you're reading through the Bible with us this year, just yesterday we read John chapter 9, the Gospel of John. Jesus performs a miracle. He he heals a man that was born blind from birth. He opens his eyes. He has sight. And the Jewish leaders of the day are angry because Jesus performed a miracle on the wrong day of the week. They consistently reject Jesus as a threat to their power. And so what Peter says is, and part of what we're watching is the, the prophecy that was fulfilled, the Jewish leaders would not accept him, but there's a principle that applies to all of us that we need to see, and that is, because all of us are trusting something, 
Jesus' claim to exclusivity confronts us. This is why he says, when we disobey, we stumble because we were destined to do so. There's a, there's a wiring, there's a fixed nature to humanity. We've got to worship something. We've got to trust something. There's a longing in our heart to trust something. And what Peter says is, because we're trusting in something other than Christ, when Christ's claims of exclusivity come, it conflicts with what we believe. Here's the way I would say this very clearly. People reject Christ in part because his claims contradict what they trust. People, us, all of us, humanity, naturally, we're trusting ourselves. And so when Jesus Christ comes on the scene and says, actually, no, you're broken, you're sinful, and you need the Savior that I am, when Jesus says that to us, there's a repulsion to that. Because his claim to exclusivity, to be the only way out, it collides with our internal belief system that says, no, I don't need anybody's help. I don't need anybody's grace and forgiveness. I can figure this out on my own. So Sheila Livingston's on the front row. Imagine this with me for a moment. Imagine if I started calling Sheila Ralph. Are there any Ralphs in here, by the way? Okay, good. This makes it less confusing. So I start calling Sheila Ralph. And every time I see her, I say, hey, Ralph, how you doing? Hey, Ralph, how's it going? You know, the first couple of times she might find it funny, maybe a little awkward. Well, it's kind of weird. What's he doing? But then I begin to get other people involved. I say, hey, David, this is your wife, right? Her, her name is really Sheila. It's Ralph. And I start getting the whole church to start calling her that. You know, the first couple of weeks she might find it humorous. But two, three, four months into it, she's going to go, you know what? I'm not Ralph. That's not who I am. My name's Sheila. And she's going to conclude one of two things about me. I keep calling her Ralph. She's going to conclude either I'm nuts, crazy. Does she look like a Ralph to you guys? No. Or she's going to conclude I'm a liar. I've got some deceptive motive from which I'm describing her person. Okay? Here's what happens with me and you with Jesus. Jesus starts to call us Ralph. He starts to say, you're not self-sufficient. You don't have all the answers. In fact, you're incredibly broken. And we go, wait a minute, that's not who I am. Who do you think you are telling me who I am? Which is why historically, people have understood Jesus in one of three ways, liar, lunatic, or Lord. Because when his claim of exclusivity confronts me, and it it shows me that I'm a sinner and I'm broken and I've lied, I've stolen, I've disobeyed my parents, I've had hatred and lust and anger in my heart, and he says, You've got a problem. We go, wait a minute. No, I don't. Why are you calling me Ralph? I'm not Ralph. This is who I am. Jesus' claims of exclusivity confront us. This is why in our culture today, you're seeing on surveys the rise of people who describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious. You guys know what I'm talking about? We see this everywhere in our culture. People are more and more saying, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm just not a religious person. And and while there are exceptions to this, I think most of what people are saying is, I want to feel like God likes me, but I don't want him to tell me what to do. I want to feel warm and fuzzy that God is supporting me and he, he thinks I'm great and wonderful, but I don't really want to change anything about my life to surrender to him. 
Why is that? It's because Christ's claims of exclusivity collide. This is why people typically have a problem in public forums with the name Jesus. If you just Google that from school situations to public forums, there have been people that have this repulsion to the name Jesus. Every other religion under the heavens is fine, right? But except the name Jesus, why is that? It's because Jesus is making an exclusive claim. He's saying, I'm not one of many ways. I'm not one of many options like at the buffet line after church. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Where does he get off saying that? Because he's resurrected. He defeated your sin. He's the, listen, listen to me carefully. If you're struggling with this, this idea this morning, Jesus is the only one that died for you. He's the only one who died for your sin. And so the reason I can stand up and say what I'm saying is not because we're arrogant or we're right and everybody's wrong. Or No, it's because this is the truth of who Christ is and who we are. We have a problem and Christ is the only solution. And Peter says there are people who are going to struggle with this because it's Christ's claims are contradicting what they're trusting. On the other hand, Peter says there are people that are going to believe in Christ and they will not be put to shame. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What Peter says is the way that you and I build our lives around Christ who is the cornerstone is by placing our trust in Jesus. I hope you've had the privilege of having someone in your life you really trust. Some of us have grown up in environments where we felt like we couldn't trust people. One of the great challenges is working with people who've come from families that are broken or family situations that made it difficult for them to trust others. But if you've ever experienced real trust, it's a powerful feeling, isn't it? I mean, really trusting somebody. Uh, my wife is downstairs working with the kiddos this morning, but I could tell you, I trust Shelly completely. I, I tell her my struggles. I tell her my fears. I open myself up to her because I trust that she cares for me and that she's a person of integrity, a person of strong character. See, trust is vulnerability built on a presupposition of someone's care for me and integrity and character as a person. That's what it means to really trust. There's a vulnerability, there's an openness that I have where I'm giving myself, in a sense, to them. And what Peter's saying is, the way that you and I make Christ the cornerstone of our lives around which everything else is built, is by trusting him totally and completely. And if you wanted to sum up a lot of what this passage is saying, this is it. Because Christ is the cornerstone, we trust him alone. Because Christ is the cornerstone, I have no other option but to trust him. Now, why can I make such a claim? What you will not find in these seven or eight verses in chapter 2 is a third option. You see two options, believe or don't believe in Jesus. See, the reason that group, spiritual but not religious, is growing is because we're buying the lie that there's another option, there's a third way. I don't have to really be for Jesus, but I'm not really going to be against him. I'm going to try to ride the pine, to ride the pole, and not really get too serious or too oppositional to Jesus. And what Peter says is that's impossible. 
you are either building your life around the cornerstone that is Christ or you're rejecting him. I want to come back to that at the end of my message this morning, but what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to show you three results that come from building your life around Jesus as the cornerstone. I want to show you three dimensions to trusting and making Christ the cornerstone of your life. And these three are going to correspond to three Old Testament ideas that Peter is going to unpack for us, okay? Let's take each of them in turn. Because Christ is the cornerstone, we trust him alone. And here's what happens. Number one, there is a dependence totally and completely on the grace of God. When we make Christ our cornerstone, there's a dependence totally and completely on his grace. Look at verses four and five with me again. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter says part of us coming to him, part of us trusting him, is not only recognizing that Christ is the cornerstone, it's also recognizing that once we believe in him, he makes us, in a sense, stones ourselves. Now, what in the world is Peter talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament idea of the temple, okay? And he wants us to understand that the temple applies to you and I today. Well, what was the temple in the Old Testament? The temple was the place where God uniquely dwelt in the Old Testament. So you have the temple structure there in Jerusalem, and as you went further and further within that structure, you came to a place called the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies, it was said that God dwelled in a unique and a specific way. We acknowledge theologically God's everywhere. Everywhere, there's no place we can go where God is not. But there was a, a sense in which, in a special and a unique way, God dwelt in the midst of his people gathered there in Jerusalem. When you come to the New Testament, fast forward, what Jesus says is that he's the new temple. Jesus says, if you knock down these walls, I'll rebuild them in how many days? Three days. And the, the Jewish leader said, what in the world are you talking about? It took decades to build this. And he says, I know, you don't understand what I really mean. I'm the new temple. Jesus says in the same way that the temple mediated God's presence to the people, now Jesus as the temple is going to give us God's very presence. So here's what Peter's saying. When you and I trust in Christ as our cornerstone, God gives us his very presence. And we become the new temple built around Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when you came to know him, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life, you now have God living within you and through you. And that happens only by trusting in Christ. So when I say that part of trusting in Christ as the cornerstone makes us dependent, it's because picture, Peter has us pictured as these stones built together as a spiritual house, as the church of God around Jesus as this foundational life-giving source. But here's what maybe is most important for you and I this morning as 2016 people living in this country. Not only are we dependent on the grace that God gives us directly from Jesus, what this image of stones makes clear is that we are also uh, dependent upon the means of grace God gives us. So what are the means of grace God gives us? One of the means that he gives us to experience his grace is his word. 
We're, we're dependent upon his word to speak to us, to guide us, to encourage us. But what I think is really helpful to recognize here is that Peter's also saying that one of the other means of grace that God has given us is his church, is relationships in the body of Christ. So again, picture those stones, right? They're all overlapping. They're all connected. And what Peter has pictured in his mind is that the church should be a web of relationships in which we're interconnected and we are interdependent, not codependent, not I have to have you or I can't live without you or if you say something that's just not the right thing to me that I'm gonna, my whole world's going to be destroyed. No. But in a sense where we recognize that part of God's healing and mercy and grace that he gives to us comes through the ministry of other people. Our relationships with one another are one of the gifts God gives you to bless you. Let me tell you why this is a challenge for us, okay? In 2016, for a variety of reasons, we don't do relationships very well. We struggle to relate with and to connect to people. Part of it is because of technology. Technology has connected us more than it's ever before while we really don't have a semblance of real relationships. So we feel connected while we're not. That's there. But I think the deeper issue is that in our society, one of the prevailing ideologies that's at work underneath the culture that you and I live in is called hyper-individualism. The prevailing thought among most Americans, especially in this country, American thought is we are all on our own little islands and we are really not connected in any shape, form, or fashion. Let me prove to you this is how we think. How many times have you heard somebody say about a piece of legislation or some initiative that's at the federal level that we're voting on? Why don't you just vote on that? Why are you standing in the way of someone else's happiness? Why would you oppose a marriage bill? Or why would you talk about what a woman should or shouldn't do with her body? Who are you to stand in the way of them? It's not going to affect you. When you hear that rhetoric, what's behind it is this idea that one thing that's going on in our society has no effect on the rest of us. That we're all individual little islands. When the reality is, all of us are connected. Can I tell you what I'm tired of hearing? I'm so sick and tired of hearing people say, well, you can't legislate morality. Listen to me very carefully, people, especially in this political cycle that we're on. Every piece of legislation is morality-based. The question is not whether we're going to legislate morality. The question is what type of morality are we going to legislate? They all have it in there. It's all there. It's woven into it. And what we've bought as a lie at points is, well, if it doesn't directly affect me or doesn't directly and somehow connect to me, that it's not going to bother me. We're all connected. All of us are connected. There's a web of relationships. Again, I've done this test about every week just to check and see if you're still awake. How many of you were born? Raise your hand. Okay, you have parents. Your parents connect you to a web of families and relationships and networks All of us are connected. And here's why I chase that little tangent for a moment, okay? I'm afraid that hyper-individualistic thinking can seep into our view of the church and relationships. It's very easy to think that I don't really need anybody. If I've got my Bible and my cup of coffee and I'm at my home and I'm coming to hear sermons every week, that that's really all I need. I really don't need anything else in my life. When the truth is, part of the grace that God gives us is other people. Here's the statement I would make. 
part of God's grace to you is one another. Part of what God has given you as grace to bless you, to help you, to encourage you, to help provide healing to your life is other people in the body of Christ. Listen to James chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, I believe James is talking more than just physical healing. I believe part of the relational network he's talking about is that when I talk about my sin and my brokenness to other people, it actually brings healing into my life. Because when I move my sin and my junk out of the darkness and bring it into the light, I can see it for what it really is. I can see it for how broken it is and how much I need God's grace. And it's me being honest about where I'm at. Part of God's grace in your life is the church, the body in which you can connect with other people. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that you need Christ-centered relationships? Do you believe that you need relationships with other believers in this church where you could actually confess your sins to another person? I want you to know, I believe part of the gift that God has given you and me is the ability not just to share those, but to bear one another's burdens, right? So that when you share it, I'm praying for you, I'm encouraging you. Paul says, excuse me, Peter says in this passage that part of what happens when we trust in Christ is not only we're dependent upon him, that we become dependent and interdependent on the means God gives us, and one of those is relationships. Number two, Peter also tells us that when we trust in Christ as our cornerstone, we get the privilege and the opportunity of obedience. Obedience. Look at verse 5 with me for this kind of connection. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Notice this phrase. Here's the key. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Both in verse 4 and verse 9, Peter says, you are a priest. Now, what's a priest? What does he do? In the Old Testament, the priests were the religious leaders of the day. They led, specifically in the temple, and places of worship, where they were declaring God's goodness and grace. They were also charged with leading the sacrificial system. They were leading that time of sacrifice that was pointing people to the seriousness of their sin and the coming sacrifice that is Jesus Christ. Peter says, in a sense, believers today are also priests. This is where we get the idea of the priesthood of the believer. And here's what that means, is that means you don't have to have somebody mediating for you between yourself and God. Jesus is the only one you need. And if you know Christ, you can directly worship and praise your God. That's what it means to be a priest. And so when Peter says that we're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, what he's emphasizing is that we have a role in continuing to make worship the focus and the emphasis of a local church. Now, what does it mean to offer sacrifices this kind of way of worship and praise in a New Testament setting? Here's what I believe it means. I believe the best way we express worship to God is through obedience. 
I believe the primary way we express worship and declare God as our highest value, worthy of all glory and honor and praise. How do we do that? It's not just through talking about it. It's actually through surrendering our lives and daily obedience to him. Now, if that is confusing to you, let me just say it this way. Obedience is not an obligation, but an opportunity to experience God's grace. Obedience is not a cold, dutiful obligation, but it's a privilege and a gift. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Yesterday I was listening to somebody talk about the fact that you and I have the privilege of being called God's friend. The Bible's clear that in the Old Testament and different places, we are called the friends of God. And we need to be careful with that. We don't need to see God in a trivial sense. God's still God. He's creator. He's holy. We're human beings in need of his grace. But the way that God has made you and I his friend is by seeking us out. His son took on human flesh and experienced everything that we've experienced. So if you've experienced loss, if you've experienced pain, if you've experienced betrayal, if you've experienced agonizing, torturous pain in your body, what we can say is God has experienced that too. God makes us his friend by virtue of his pursuance of us and his son, Jesus Christ. Now think about friendships in your life. What are the deepest friendships and relationships you have in your life? Think about people that you enjoy being around. What are the characteristics of that relationship that you have with them? For most of us, the people that we want to be around are the people where we can be ourselves. I can let my guard down. I don't have to put on a show. I don't have to act like I have it all together. I can just be me, and I want that person to be themselves, right? We want our close friends to be their authentic selves, where there's no airs, there's no kind of putting on a front. It's just me, man. You have friends like that in your life, where you can just be yourself around them? The point that I want to make about obedience is obedience is where we're actually relating to God as he truly is where you and I really cultivate and experience friendship with God is when I respond to God as he really, really is. Well, who is God really? God is the holy, sovereign creator of the universe who brought the world into existence with just a word. He's the God who loves you more than you and I could ever imagine, and he's moved heaven and earth to redeem you and me from our sins. And when we relate to him in submission and obedience, we're connecting with God as he really and truly is. See, it's very easy to see obedience as an obligatory duty, but what we've got to recognize is submitting ourselves to God's word, submitting ourselves to his commands is actually a gift God gives us. Listen to me carefully. The way to cultivate intimacy with God, first and foremost, is not through music. It's not through an emotional experience. The first way that you and I can really cultivate intimacy with God is through obedience. So let me ask you this question. Do you view obedience as an obligation or as an opportunity? Do you view obedience as a duty or as a joy? This is really important for those of you still in high school, 
those of you still around, a lot of people that are not trying to follow Christ, not trying to surrender to his word, because it's very easy to subtly begin to think, man, I'm kind of missing out on the fun. I mean, I'm not getting to do what everybody else is getting to do. These commands that God gives me about sexual purity and relationships and my language and all these things, I mean, isn't that kind of passe? I mean, wouldn't it be more fun for me to get to do whatever I want to do in these areas? What you and I need to recognize is the obedience God calls you to is not just the right thing to do. It's actually what's good for you. Because when you surrender to that, you are connecting yourself to God's friendship in a real and an intimate way. This doesn't just apply to those of you still in school. It's easier for those of us as adults to look around and say, man, it feels like the people that, that aren't following God have it easier than we do at times. It's easier to look around and, and compare ourselves to other people we think are doing great because of the front that they put up. It's easy for us to begin to wonder, is obedience really something that's good for me. Listen to me carefully. True freedom doesn't come from getting to do whatever you want to do. True freedom comes in getting to do what you were made to do. We're buying a lie that says, if I get to gratify my desires, if I get to do whatever I want, to to do whatever I feel, that's real freedom. Listen to me. That is not freedom. That's slavery. Because you're a slave to your desires. Real freedom is getting to do what you were made to do. What were you made to do? You were made to worship your God who loves you. And so when we obey that God, when we surrender our lives to him, we're experiencing the highest level of freedom because we're doing what we were made to do. Number three, and finally, not only do we experience incredible dependence and obedience when we trust Christ as our cornerstone, we also experience incredible purpose. Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The qualifiers here I want you to pay attention to are chosen race, holy people, people for his own possession. He's talking about the fact that in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was the set-apart group of people that God, by his law, wanted to be separate and apart to shine his light to the nations around them. Please understand that while the missionary mandate is very ratcheted up in the New Testament, there was a sense in which the Israel nation, the nation of Israel, was to be this light to Gentile nations. In fact, we see God's heart for the nations in the Old Testament in books like Jonah, where God sends a prophet to speak to Assyrians, to Gentiles, and to tell them repent. And while the nation of Israel failed and eventually was taken into exile, the church is this new creation, this new organism. God says, I want you, in a sense, to be this set-apart people for a purpose. What's the purpose you and I are to be set apart for? Look back at verse 9 that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You and I have been given a sacred, holy purpose, and that is to declare to people that while they find themselves in darkness and deception and death, that the light of Christ can save them. Church, we have been given a sacred trust. We've been given a sacred purpose 
to tell people that though they're in the darkness of sin, though their lives are broken, though they've lied, they've stolen, though they're deserving of death before a holy God, that God loves them. Everybody look at me. God loves you. How do I know that? Because he sent his son to die for you. My, my six-year-old Seth was up here with me this morning. You look like really sweet people, but I don't think I'd let him die for any one of you. And God, the love of God, moves him to look at us in our helpless situation and say, I, don't, I know they don't deserve it. I know they're not worthy, but I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to send my son to take the penalty that they should have gotten. Church, what we need is to have our hearts captivated again by the fact that God loves us, that he's called us out of darkness and into the light so much that we can't help but tell people that. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you told someone about the goodness and grace of God? When was the last time that you took the time to pray for someone in your life that you know doesn't know Christ, that needs to know that though they're in darkness, God can move them and bring them to the light? When was the last time that you wept for people in your life that don't know Christ? Can you think about that with me for a moment? Because what I want you to know is when we trust Christ, when we make him our cornerstone, what happens is we're repurposed for his purposes. We've been given a mission, a mandate to tell people about the message, the truth that they can be forgiven my life group this morning, we spent some time at the end of our time together praying for people in our lives who do not know Christ that we're seeking an opportunity to share the gospel with. I know that can be scary. I know that can be intimidating. I know that it's hard to open our mouths and make the bridge from nominal, normal conversation to spiritual things. But guys, let me remind you a point I made earlier, and I'll close with this. There's no third option. There's not an A, B, and then a C. There's either trust in Christ or rejecting him. Can I tell you what that should do for you and for me? That should give us an urgency to say, I'm going to be careful how I share. I want to be loving and kind. I don't want to see people as projects. I want to see people that I'm called to love, but I'm going to open my mouth and talk to people about the fact that Jesus died for them. What Peter says here is we've been given the opportunity. Look at verse 10 and I'll close with this. Once you were not God's people, now you are. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are people that have been given mercy. And apart from Christ, you cannot experience God's mercy and forgiveness and grace. When's the last time you talked to someone about the goodness of God's grace? Would you pray with me, please, church? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I know some of you here this morning are, are Christians, you're followers of Jesus, you're aliens and pilgrims, and
I hope you know that the cornerstone you're building your life around indeed has given you a dependence and an obedience and a purpose. But I wonder if some of us maybe just need to recommit ourselves again today just to refresh our faith and our trust in you. I wonder if there's some of us that maybe it has been a long, long, long time since we opened our mouth and actually